Hey there, Mike Stelzner coming to you with a fascinating update you might not be familiar with. Did you know that Social Media Examiner can deliver all the marketing, training, news, and trends, insights that you need into your inbox three days a week when you sign up for our newsletter and it's completely free? Simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates and take your marketing to the next level. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here's your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and for business owners who want to know what works with social media. Very excited about today's show. Today we're going to explore why many marketers need to consider a reboot to the way they market in this rapidly changing world with Mitch Joel. Before we do that, I just wanted to say thank you so much. I don't know if you realize it, but you are one of 21,000 people who listen to each episode of this podcast, and that just blows my mind. Uh, I think it was about eight months ago when we started, and I've been publishing a podcast every single week since then, and it's just been a super crazy, rewarding process. We're already on episode number 42, and I know there's a lot of people listening. Uh, Let me rephrase. I know there's a lot of people that are out there that are missing out on this podcast. I mean, if you think about it, anybody you know that is a marketer or that has a business could benefit from this podcast. And if you're a regular listener, I would love it if you'd be willing to help in one of two ways to help get the word out. Uh, Number one is you can head over to iTunes by going to socialmediaexaminer.com slash iTunes and give us a simple rating and or a review. This just kind of helps more people in the iTunes library to discover us. And the second thing you can do, and you can do this right now wherever you are remotely, even while you're listening to this podcast, is visiting socialmediaexaminer.com slash love. What that'll do is put a little tweet into your Twitter stream, letting your friends know that you listen to the podcast. One other thing, if you want to be part of a future episode of this podcast, I'd strongly recommend you try out our voicemail hotline. You'd be surprised how few people actually do this. All you need to do is visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash voicemail. You can do it from your computer, and basically it allows you to record a question and mention the name of your website, and if we pick your question, you'll show up in a future episode of this podcast and also be profiled on socialmediaexaminer.com. And you can find out more by simply visiting socialmediaexaminer.com slash voicemail. So with that, let's transition over to today's interview with Mitch Joel. You're going to love it. Let's go over there right now. Helping you simplify your social safari, here's this week's expert guide. I am super excited to be joined today by Mitch Joel. If you don't know who Mitch is, he's the author of a book and podcast by the same name, Six Pixels of Separation, and I absolutely love and strongly recommend you check out his podcast. His brand new masterpiece is a book called Control-Alt-Delete, Reboot Your Business, Reboot Your Life, your future depends on it. Hey, Mitch, welcome to the show. Mike, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start off with a personal question. I know you've got young kids, and uh, I know it's going to be a while before they enter the workforce. 
What's the business world going to look like for them when they enter that workforce? Mike, not if I can help it. They should start working really soon. I mean, we're very entrepreneurial, you and I. (laughs) It's funny when the kids are playing and they're like playing with their Legos and blocks. I often turn to my wife and like, when do they start doing stuff? Like, this is so boring. (laughs) Enough of the playing. Give it about two more years. Exactly. Um, It's an amazingly complex question to answer. And the way I sort of frame it is we, we didn't have an iPad three and a half years ago. So for us to even think about what life will be like in a decade, I think is just unfathomable. What I can tell you is that I believe business currently, and that's partly the catalyst of technology, has put us into this rapid state of, I call it rapid state of mutation in the book. But more importantly, I think we've gone through exponential growth. And, and human beings have an exceptionally difficult time even understanding, and I do myself, the, the, the sort of dramaticness of exponential growth. And an example of that would have been like the iPad, the fact that this thing didn't even exist three and a half years ago. And you think about the pervasiveness of it and how much it has imploded the PC market. I can't imagine what the world's going to even look like. Well, I asked my kids a funny question yesterday. You know, um, we were listening to some song. It was Alvin and the Chipmunks version of You Spin Me Right Round Baby or whatever. And I'm like, do you guys even know what a record is? And my 11-year-old is all, yeah, it's a CD with like a stick thing. (laughs) (laughs) There's a sticker on it, right? (laughs) With a little stick that somehow goes over the top of it, you know? And, um, you know, I mean, obviously our children aren't going to know anything but technology. And it's so interesting. And I think it's changing the lives of people. And it's also changing the state of businesses. And well, we'll think about it this way too, Mike, like it, it's been, so I had one of those sort of like moments where your brain goes, Oh my God, that's crazy. Like I called my brain melt. I was thinking about how the fact that I'm so hooked now on things like Netflix and Spotify and RDO that I was almost like, why would anybody download content and keep it on a hard drive? You know what I mean? Like, and if you think about even that as, as, as such a dramatic statement, it's very true. Like, why even own anything? In a world where I could pay $9.99 for a full album on iTunes, I can spend $9.99 a month on Spotify and have access to the entire music library. That's, like, that's, cra- that's it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, you know, in the, I want to read a little quote out of the prelude of your book, and then I'm going to ask you a question. In the prelude, you say that during this state of purgatory, many businesses will die and many jobs will disappear. But in the same breath, many businesses will thrive, many new businesses will be created, and many new jobs will be invented. Said another way, and this is me now saying this, to survive, we need a reboot. Now, for the marketers that are listening right now, can you explain why? Yeah. So, I started my agency, Twist Image, in 2000. Well, I didn't start in 2000. Two of my business partners did, and I joined them, and now we're four business partners. I joined in 2002. And when we started it, we had this sort of idea of creating a real modern marketing agency, one that was really sort of bent on technology and connectivity and things like that. And if I fast forward to 2013, where we sit right now, you and I having this conversation, I can tell you that I am currently hiring for for positions that didn't exist when I started this business. I am currently hiring people who have degrees in areas that I would have never have thought people like that would be of value to this type of business. And if you look at that in terms of a life cycle of 13 years and then take what we've seen in the past five years, you can see that acceleration really kick in. And one of the key places I look to is even education. You think about how we educate young people and what we're setting them up to do 
I don't believe we're setting them up properly. I don't believe we are setting up an infrastructure for a world that exists. I think more often and more common, we're going to see people working on projects. We're going to see people starting their own thing. We're not going to be beholden to this idea of I must go to this office for this job for X amount of years to plan my retirement. And so when I think about it from that perspective, you have to imagine that what we're doing as professional marketers fundamentally changes as well, how we're connected to things, how we engage with brands, how we engage in our life. So let's focus on the word reboot, because um, I know that that's kind of the premise. Obviously, you've got that in the title of your book. When I think about rebooting, I think about obviously restarting a computer. So some things remain the same and some things change. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on what needs to change? Yeah, and that's sort of exactly where I wanted to go. I think that when you say you've got to implode everything, it's too cataclysmic for people. They sort of take a step back and it's like they can't comprehend that. What I mean by reboot, it's the ability to sort of look at a business model, how you actually get a client, acquire a client, engage them, build loyalty, and bring it back. And be able to look at that process and say, because of what's happened with technology, because of what's happened with connectivity, because of social channels, mobile, hyper-local, and things like that, Am I actually connecting with them in the best way possible? And so I really do think when I look at marketing professionals, when I look at when I'm speaking, when I'm doing events like yours, when I'm blogging, when I'm speaking just to clients one-on-one, is you can almost feel like they're not really grasping that. Like they're still holding on to the old ways in which they bought sold, created, and engaged with media. And so for me, the book was a a sort of wake-up call to say, you know, the next five years are going to be pretty traumatic, and now is the time to understand what that means. And I also want to sort of just sort of lump it all together. The book isn't a forward-looking book, in fact. Uh, what, what it's based on are the five, these five movements that I've uncovered, and they're not trends. They're five things that have already happened. They've shaped the business. They've changed the way we work, and yet brands aren't doing a lot about them. So to me, it was more about the like, like grabbing you by the scruff and going like, you see this and it's factual and it's fact-based and it's already happened. How are you going to adapt your business? And the book answers that question. And then how are you going to adapt yourself? You know, when I think about the fact that um, Facebook has only been public to the non, you know, university students for seven years and Twitter's only been around for seven years. I mean, that's just, they're still babies and, but it's been so widely adopted. And I'm just curious to, to hear your take on the, ubiquitous adoption of social media. Do you think this is part of what's led to the need for businesses and marketers to change? I don't know if it's social media so much as it has been the fact that we are so intrinsically connected now as human beings. You know, when you think about the visual of two young people walking through a shopping mall and buying, you'd think, wow, these are two good prospects for my store. But when in fact, what they are, there's probably a thousand in two people right there because each person at that age probably has about 500 connections on Facebook. So they're chatting, they're, they're sharing, they're texting, they're doing all these things that create this this sort of fabric of a connected society like we've never had before. So I do think that social media as a platform of connectivity has been a major, major factor in this. I think the the biggest change in the past couple of years that, that's very, very profound that I'm not sure if marketers understand or even the people who built the platforms understand is that because the adoption has become so intense, so you've got a billion plus people on Facebook, if that number is accurate, and, and Twitter's massive growth, 
is it's not just like the MySpace era where it's like, well, now it's on to the next thing because we've had several years and such a steep adoption, they're hard to let go of. So, And you see this, this now in the sort of Google Plus sort of conversation. Mm-hmm. The people who are embedded on Facebook, it's not like you can just hop over to Google Plus. It's like you need to add it on actually because you just can't abandon all of the history and all of the sort of exponential growth that your network has. And so that's the cool part about social media. And that's the cool part that makes these newer channels more interesting than the ones that came before them. In that uh, quote that I read earlier, you said many new businesses will be created and many new jobs will be invented. Can you kind of speak to what you think the opportunity here is for marketers moving forward? I'm amazed every single day that I wake up that marketers haven't really fully embraced this. I mean, if you just take and thin slice one component of what I'm talking about, let's call it marketing optimization. And this is an area that my good friends Brian Eisenberg and Avinash Kaushik speak a lot about. It's this, this, this idea that you know every single day for very nominal money, in fact, almost next to no money, you could test things. You can test one or two things on your site. I know, Mike, you're so driven by testing and learning from your analytics and doing things. And that's why you've had that exponential growth and the success that you've had with Social Media Examiner. And so if you just started doing that, what would you learn? And the challenge we have with this is that we're human beings and we have egos. And what we would probably learn is that a lot of our decisions were wrong or we weren't right. And so marketers shy away from this. They go back to the old way because they don't want to be wrong. What they're missing, though, is the bigger opportunity. That if you create a culture of testing and learning because it's so cheap and easy to do, especially in digital channels, that over time what you become is a ninja. Right? You become exceptionally amazing at this. So when you think about that just sliver, what does that mean for, for people coming out of school? What does this mean for the marketing professional? There's an entire industry around understanding analytics the math behind it, the testing and optimization, the choices, the human behavior. In and of itself, this is an area that while we've had to a certain degree in marketing, never at this level of intensity. And you, are, you said that just represents one slice. Can you give me an example of another slice that you think is a, because I, I thought that was pretty intriguing what you were just talking about there. Is there another slice beyond the analytics that you think represents massive opportunity for marketers? Sure. Look at just programmatic buying. Look at the fact that we have all of these exchanges now that are evolving to the sense of, you know, you're, you're, you're Budweiser and you want to buy advertising across all of these networks. I've got to have my media person call that media person, negotiate a deal. How, when's it going to run? How's it going to work? We've now moved to a technological platform of real time where Budweiser could say we are interested in this amount of impressions across these type of, of networks. Here's what we're willing to pay. It's almost auction based as if you have in Google, but it's all real time bidding, real time pushing of information. There's one. Another one is retargeting. How many email addresses, Mike, do you have that have never been activated? So someone signed up, but they haven't interacted, they haven't opened, they haven't done something. We could now take that information, send them a message, use what it comes back to retarget to them, to provide them more value. All of these are are technically based, analytic-driven activities that we couldn't really do all that well a couple years ago. And they're just, they're pretty nascent right now. And all of them offer tremendous opportunities, and there's so many more. That, that you know, those are just sure. the two now. The but mobile, I going the whole mobile that. frontier is huge too, right? I mean, I think that's going to open up a massive opportunity that many marketers can't even grapple with right now. Well, right now, even even from brands and agency side, finding the right talent that can actually help you think through the user design and user experience, the actual programming of it, the actual marketing of it, the actual strategy of it, 
The mistake that we've made to date is we've made mobile a smaller version of the web. That, and now what we're learning through things like the iPhone and Android devices and tablets is that's clearly not the case. It's a completely different experience and how people engage with content and media is fundamentally different. So there in and of itself, you're absolutely right, becomes a whole other opportunity for people. Okay, so if you think back to the World Wide Web and when it started getting mainstream adoption in the late 90s and then the early 2000s, and then you think about the whole social media marketing frontier, um, you know, each of those were essentially complete game changers for the world of marketing. Do you see us entering yet another stage that's going to be on par with the introduction of the World Wide Web with all this stuff happening? Or do you think this is just a gradual evolution we're going through right now? No, in fact, what I think is that what we are currently spiking into in terms of mobile touch and the things you can do with this is going to make web, e-commerce, and social media cumulatively look like a joke. That's what I think. <laughs> and and that's, that's scary for marketers, isn't it? Because <laughs> just when we think we've got something figured out, there's something new. Well, the thing that, that, that both frustrates me as, as a professional marketer and that I love because of the fact that I, I do a lot of my business development through the creation of the content, whether it's a book, a Harvard Business Review column, a podcast, a blog, is that I, I sort of look at it and go, wow, they're still really worried about their website and their e-commerce and their transactions and their social. And this whole thing has already happened. Uh, this idea that we're, you know, we're moving towards the year mobile or mobile's happening is, is false. It's already happened. We live in a world right now, Mike, where we have – um, declining PC sales by, by a number that's staggering. We have 1.7 plus billion connected mobile devices uh, compared to that to, what are we talking, 600 million PCs. I mean, it's already happened. And so, yeah, when you, when you sort of make that, that chuckle laugh, I laugh even harder because I'm like, this has already happened. We are living in the post-PC world right now. We're living in the post-web browser world right now. And we're going to be in the post-mobile world pretty soon, I would imagine, because who knows what's coming next with Google, right? Well, but that's well, and you're right, and that's why in in the book, one of these movements I define as the one-screen world, because right now what we have is this conversation around three screens: TV, web, and mobile. Some people will call the fourth screen the iPad. And my argument that I try and make in the book is that no, we actually live in the one-screen world, where the only screen that matters is the screen that's in front of me. Mm. Precisely because of that wearable technology. Even if you say people are multi-device, so they are watching TV and they also have their iPad or their iPhone. The truth is, the only screen that still matters is the screen that's in front of them. They're not, you know, the, one eyeball isn't on the iPhone and one eyeball isn't on the TV. <laughs> We're focused on that one screen. The difference is that these screens are now everywhere. They're ubiquitous. They're cheap and they're connected. One of, the, um, one of the key things that you key in on in your book is the concept of utility. Can you explain what you mean by this and what marketers need to be thinking about when it comes to utility? Yeah, I didn't want to jump ahead, but when you talked about like what are some of these new areas, I think utility is probably the most virgin-based opportunity that so few brands are doing. So what we currently have is a world that I call the narcissistic web. And the narcissistic web works like this. I'm going to start an app called Social Media Examiner, and all it's going to be are the articles and calls to actions for the conference and all the things you would probably never do. But let's say I, you were to do that. I would say that it's narcissistic. The app is about you uh, as, as the brand, and you're hoping that people care enough about your brand to engage with it. The flip side of that is saying, well, if you look at all the data that talks about branded apps, it's pretty 
bad. It's actually dubious. You'll see data that like 25% of all branded apps get downloaded and used once and never again. Mm. There's some data where it's upwards of 20% of branded apps get downloaded and never opened. Can you imagine sucking that bad? Like the people never open the app. That's horrible. And the truth is that data lies because what they're talking about are these narcissistic apps. Those are apps that suck. We use apps day in and day out. Which apps do we use? We use apps that provide utility, that provide value to us. One of the examples I talk about in the book and I talk about when I speak a lot is an app that's called Sit or Squat. And the way the app works is you turn it on and it knows where you are because it's your smartphone and it tells you where a clean bathroom is. And you might laugh at that and think it's ridiculous, but when you travel a lot or you've got kids or you need a bathroom that's handicap accessible or you just want a clean bathroom, it's, it's nice to know. And it's based off of a wiki platform so anybody can add a bathroom, rate a bathroom, comment on a bathroom, request that a bathroom is removed. And it's all brought to you by the people at Charmin, Procter & Gamble, a huh. toilet paper company. They could have done the app that says, here, we're going to push a coupon to you. We're now double quilted. Here's a little game with the bear and the pieces of toilet paper stuck to its bum and how many you take off you can play with. And, you know, like all that sort of ridiculous stuff that we typically see. But they actually took a step back and said, how do we create something people would actually care about? And listen, when I'm walking down that aisle of Walmart and I typically tip over the 32 roll of Majesta for $9.99, now I become a Charmin loyalist. And in fact, I talk about it in places like this all the time. So they're actually adding value to my travel experience. It's something that aligns me to the brand, and it's not a zero-sum game. They're not going to stop with the coupons. They're not going to stop with the TV. But what it does is it provides an additional level of utility that brands could never have before. And that's the important thing here. It's the fact that you could never do the utility as a brand before. You really couldn't. All the intermediaries were there. Now you can. Any brand can have an idea in text, images, audio, video, multimedia, whatever. Produce it and push it to the world basically for free. Does utility only work in the case of apps or could it even be in the case of content, for example? Well, I think that the beautiful thing about utility is that when when I talk about it, I talk about it being both physical and digital. It's sort of a a squishiness of the two. So so another sort of physical engagement of utility is you go to the Lego store and these are really small square footage stores. How does Lego do this in a world of Toys R Us and Targets and department stores? They have to provide a level of utility that's different than what you would get there. And so if you've ever taken the box off the shelf and wondered what's inside and if you could do it, you hold it up in front of this digital box and it actually builds it in August reality 3d where you can turn it around you can see all the pieces how it builds what's inside all that sort of stuff and it's a real utility i think you're right content too is a functional utility the challenge that we've had historically with it is that content too has become somewhat narcissistic so the content is like thinly veiled marketing blather it's not really authentic valuable content but no clearly we know that news apps and apps around brands and publications that we know and trust are our true utility in our lives so the question is as a brand is can you recreate that with true authenticity. This is cool stuff. Um, in your book, right in the middle of it, you mentioned a dinner conversation you had with Sherry Turkle. And she's the author of Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. And you said that something happened during that discussion with her. Can you share a little bit, a little bit about that story? You know, People like you and I love our smartphones. We love our connected devices. We love our our MacBook Airs and things like that. And in having the conversation with her about whether technology is making us better or, or not or more connected or not, I came to realize that it's somewhat crazy that, you know, we have a saying in our world called time to device. 
from when you wake up, what's your time to device? Most people roll over and it's the first thing they touch is actually the phone. It's the last thing they touch before they go to bed. We hold it in our hands and we caress it. It's very sensual actually, if you think about it. And we really love that sort of connectedness that we have. And I, I just sort of came to realize that every, all the great things that I love about this and that I love it so much and I still do to this day, there is another side. And so it's the type of thing now where while I'm sitting on the floor joking around earlier about playing blocks or Lego and you think, God, like when are we going to do something exciting here? That impetus I have to reach for my phone to check the email, to see what someone's saying on Facebook, to see what, what's happening on Twitter, um, I take a second now and I take a, a sort of moment to breathe. And I realize that life isn't about filling it up with every single moment of having information, but it's about living. And so I'm not the guy who's going to sit at a concert or sporting event and lament everybody who's not watching the event and being a part of it, but filming it and recording it for everyone else to see. I'm not going to be that guy, but I will be the guy that says there are 30 seconds of time that you can take to breathe in deep to experience rather than just record. You know, I'm glad you, I'm glad you've got a whole section in your book about rebooting your life, and and I, I am you know um, finding, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are finding a certain addictive nature to um, our smartphones and Facebook and all this other kind of stuff, and um, and I think you know we can kind of get lost in this. Uh, we're working, we're we're making progress because we're tweeting. <laughs> And I think there's a little bit more to it. And you talk about becoming a perpetual entrepreneur, which I think is kind of maybe tied to this a little bit. Can you explain what that means? Well, the idea of being the perpetual entrepreneur was more of a call to arms to say that just because you did something great, it doesn't mean you're entitled to greatness. So the example I, I would use, and it's one that we could all relate to, is Apple are perpetual entrepreneurs. They're willing to self-cannibalize their own products, their own revenue, and everything else to build the company of the future. That's a pretty powerful place, and not many companies can, can assent to that type of position. Can you explain what they did? It, it, this, yeah, pause for a second. Explain what Apple did to cannibalize themselves, just so people can understand that. You, like the iPod, sure. iPhone replacing the iPod, that kind of thing? I think that's a great example. So it would be like we have this music player called the iPod, but we've got this sort of desire to do the phone. But if you do the phone and the phone is basically the pod with the phone, no one will buy the pod anymore. And they go, right, that's actually what you're supposed to do. If nobody will use it anymore, for those who want it can still have it, but we are going to move forward and, and push that forward. Uh, so, so that is actually a really good example. So thank you for bringing it out. But now, but what I want you to do is take a step back and look at other companies. So let's look at, you know, RIM, now known as BlackBerry. And everyone goes, wow, why could, what happened to RIM? What, why couldn't they be Apple? And the answer to the question is very, very complex, but I'll simplify it by this vision of the perpetual entrepreneur. It is possible that they had one solid business idea, secure mobile email. And that idea is very, very good, especially the timing that they found it. And they created an entire market around that. And that is profoundly powerful and valuable. But that doesn't entitle them to a future that is the same as Apple's. If culturally within, they haven't done anything else but just improve that type of service, that's the type of business it is. And if that business or industry slowly goes away, there is nothing wrong with it in the sense of that happens. There is if you want to if you're not, if you're if you're a shareholder in Rim, it's not great or, or BlackBerry. But at the end of the day, they might have been not the non-perpetual entrepreneur. They're the company that had a great idea, monetized it as far as they could, and that's that. We shouldn't sort of compare, throw the two in. 
what I make an argument for in the book is to think like the perpetual entrepreneur, to always be thinking about how your industry is evolving. We talked about it very briefly here, right? This idea of you're worried about your web, e-commerce transactions and social, and you're saying, oh, we'll deal with mobile later. That's the problem. The perpetual entrepreneur would say, you know what? How do we create the mobile experience now because that's where the world is and bring those three important factors into it so that we can, we can leapfrog our competition. It seems that letting go is the issue for most of us, isn't it? You know, letting go of what we know has worked in the past in order to embrace what likely may or may not work in the future. That's, that's a challenge we all face, isn't it? Well, it's also a question of comfort. And so people say, oh, I embrace change. And whenever someone says I embrace change, I laugh because <laughs> I talk about change, but I don't embrace change. I'll give you a real life example. If every morning I snuck into your house, Mike, and I moved your coffee machine, I promise you by the third morning, you would want me dead. <laughs> well, I may not notice it if you moved it an inch, but if you moved it a lot, for sure. You, you know, you don't like change. You don't like erraticness. You like comfort. You like knowing that this is where that is. One of the reasons why I often talk about blogging and podcasting not capitalizing as big as it could on traditional media is that traditional media was destination-based and it was very much time-based. I could walk through the airport and as I walk through the bookstore, say to myself, it feels about right that there should be a new issue of Fast Company. It feels like four weeks. Like human beings are very programmatic. If you look at blogs, it's like, hey, I'll post when I want. And because of RSS and Twitter, I'll just post it out when I want or I'll record when I want. It's like that's why the adoption doesn't happen. And if you look at the sort of traditional media that have scored so massively in digital, it's they've brought to it that, that de rigueur of comfort, that regularity of it. And that's very profound. Okay. For all the marketers that are listening, including you and me, how do we um, market ourselves in this new era? Because obviously, um, you do talk about that in the book, that we need to be thinking about ourselves also, not just the companies we work for. You know, in 2008, I wrote the book, Six Pixels of Separation. It came out in 2009, and I sort of think back and go, like, is there anything of relevance in there? And I, I went back to obviously review it prior to, to working on Control-Alt-Delete, and I realized, wow, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of stuff in there that still resonates today. And I think philosophically, we know what it is to do. And I think what this book really talks about is, is, okay, now you know, but what now? And that, I think, is what marketers need to start thinking about. Not whether or not, is it Facebook? Is it mobile? Is it social? It's really, what is the plan now? These things are not fads. The web is not going away. Mobile's not going away. Social's not going away. Local is not going away. Hyper-connectivity is not going away. Uh, wearable technology, connected devices. We all know this. And that, by the way, is what I mean by purgatory. Hell was the place where we didn't know if this stuff was going to be here and we didn't know what to do about it. Purgatory is where we're at. We know this stuff is happening or has happened and we're not doing anything about it. And so I really do think part of it is the reboot. It's going back and looking strategically at what your business is, how it can best connect. And then there's a little part, and I talk a bit about it in the book, that's the secret sauce. And I don't know the secret sauce. I can't define it. You know, one of the pleasures of my life is I get the podcast too. I've had you as a guest on the show. And at one point I had Seth Godin on. He's been on many times, and I'm very fortunate that, that he, he always agrees to connect with me. And we were talking about sort of how he does what he does. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated with it. Like, how does he come up with the stuff? And he, he candidly once said to me one day, that's the secret sauce. He doesn't know the secret. 
<laughs> he goes, it's just, he goes, I don't, you know, I notice things and I write about them and it connects. It's sort of like this mystical thing that, that can't be defined. Why did what happened to you two happen to you two? And only, a band like In Excess only had a, a modicum of that type of success. They both came out the same time. Like, like it's, there's sometimes just these things that happen. So I think if you can better understand that there are forces at play and that what you create and put into the market continues to build on your brand and your substance, you can then start understanding better what connects with people and trying to create a program more about that. Well, Mitch, this has been a really awesome discussion and I want to strongly encourage people to pick up your new book, Control, Alt, Delete. And I will just mention that Control is C-T-R-L. Um, Mitch, if people want to learn more about the book and or more about you, where would you send them? Yeah, the, the one sort of catch-all destination is twistimage.com forward slash blog, and that's where Six Pixels is and Control-Alt-Delete. Alternately, you can just do a search for Google Bing Yahoo for Mitch Joel. And I definitely want to make a pitch for your uh, podcast, Six Pixels of Separation. What do you, You've been doing over 350 episodes, and, and, and I love it, and I want to recommend everybody check it out. Mitch, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing a lot of your passion and insight on this very important topic. It's an honor, and I appreciate your time. Thanks for everything that you do, Mike. Well, I hope you got a lot out of that podcast interview with Mitch Joel. Be sure to check out his new book, Control-Alt-Delete, and that's spelled C-T-R-L for the word control. Also, if there was anything that we mentioned in this podcast that you didn't catch, you can always check out the show notes and or leave your comments at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 42. It'll direct you right to our uh, blog post for this particular podcast. Also, uh, if you're willing, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I would be indebted to you if you'd be willing to get the word out to your friends by simply visiting socialmediaexaminer.com slash love. That will post a tweet into your Twitter stream letting your friends know what you think about the show. Well, this does bring us to the end of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. Again, I am your host, Michael Stelzner, and I want to encourage you, if you're new to the podcast, to go back and check out a lot of the old episodes. And with that, I just want to say I hope you make the absolute best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.